0: All right, so today we're going to be talking about the differences between and the similarities between male and female. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, reading what God's word says here regarding male and female. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. All right, so here we see this creation uh, account. Obviously, this when we look at Genesis, chapter one gives us the broad picture of creation. Chapter two then focuses specifically on the creation of male and female. Right? We know that God created Adam first. It'll be one of the subjects of today's lesson, and that from Adam he took a rib out, he created woman. He created Eve, and so we see that uh, male and female together form what we call the image of God imago Dei, and both are part of the human race, and scripture designates uh, the human race as man. And we often use the word mankind as well as a modern rendition of that. And so when we talk about the human race, we're talking about man as male and female as a subject here, they said this is a very controversial subject today. And obviously,
1: as I was preaching
0: worldly philosophies have had a big impact on how we think about this, what, are, what would you say what would you say is the major philosophy that I was talking today that has impacted We talk about male and female. And we talk about traditional gender roles. That was kind of usurped about fifty years ago. What was what, what undergirded that? What brought that about? Was that feminism? 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 Very good, feminism. What is feminism? Can someone describe it for me? I think I spelled that correctly. Can someone describe that? quality, that's a big word there, quality. sermon. And if you understand Marxism, Marxism, one of the key tenets of it was the obliteration of gender roles. Um, If you look at some of the old, I remember when I was in college, we, we saw some of these old Well, but equality tends to lead to women going and working in factories, building tanks and ships and weapons. We do that here so, as well in America. Rosie River. Anybody know who Rosie River is? Yeah. So the men were out fighting war in World War II, and Rosie River represented all the housewives who went to work doing work, what? Building, building. missiles. until the 20th century, gender roles were pretty much set in stone traditionally throughout all cultures. In fact, apart from Western society, those gender roles are still respected and viewed. And I believe this goes back to a creation ordinance. But as I said, society gets more intellectual, becomes more academic, more philosophical, we so further and further from the ways of God and develop our own ways. Feminism ultimately offshoot of Marxism, specifically uh, one of the greater schools of thought under Antonio Gramsci out of Italy, um, and was designed pretty much to pull out the carpet from Western society, particularly American society and the Soviets and whatnot. Um, Academia in the 1960s was pushing a lot of this. On the flip side of this, I want to give you the flip side because we could see the negative here, but on the other side of it, you also had was men who were being utterly abusive to their wives and to women for a long period of time. Um, we often talk about the wife not being submissive and the wife not um, yielding to her husband. But we also had a long period of time where men were just utterly brutal in the way they treated their wives. It was not uncommon in times past where women were beaten frequently. happens often when we talk of see churches in, in certain locations where women are pastors you know we we begrudge that, that women are pastors in certain um, communities but where are the men the men have failed and so women have to stepped into that role because there are no men to fill that role of leadership in those communities and so we see that there's really the broad picture here is it's not just women failing to fulfill their roles as women, but men failing to fulfill their roles as men. And because both do not fulfill their roles, and now you get to where we are today. Me and Claudia were laughing about this the other day. Men want to be women, and women want to be men. But we were talking about just like overall, it's, this is like, it's not just transgenderism. It's just men are becoming increasingly more effeminate, and you know women are becoming increasingly more masculine. What do we see? Oh, we were watching, we were flipping through the channels, and wrestling came on. Remember Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant? So we were flipping through the channels, and WWE was on, and they had women, like really strong women, dressed in lingerie, fighting each other in the ring. And Claude's like, this is disgusting. You know? But again, women want to be men, and men want to be women, and so... Can mean a lot of different things. Is it equal in absolute sense? Or how do we define equal? If the woman who's wrestling goes towards it. How in the world can you live in such a bad society? You have to realise people have gone completely mad. talk about equality for the starting. When God created male and female, he created them both equal in dignity, they're both equal in personhood, and equal in importance. We have to understand that there is equality, that we are all human beings, and we are equally made in the image of God, male and female. We have an equal standing before God. We have an equal dignity and honor before God. We have an equal importance to God, but we have different roles. That's what we call the complementarian view. The egalitarian view says, no, men and women are equal in the absolute sense, and everything a man could do, a woman could do, and there should be no gender roles. Gender roles are archaic, they're patriarchal, and they belong to a society that is done away with. And by the way, there are some Christian egalitarians who claim that in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's no male or female nor barbarian or Scythian. They use that verse to claim that in the New Testament, Christ has obliterated gender roles. So the idea, which contradicts the rest of Scripture, doesn't it? I mean, what do you do with Ephesians 5? Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loves the church. What do you do? Do you throw those things out and just use Galatians 3.28 to pull the carpet out? No. And so what we have to understand is when we talk about complementarianism, when we talk about this understanding is that, is that God made us male and female, and he made us in his image, and that we're equal in dignity, we're equal in importance, we're equal equal in our humanity, but we are different in terms of, well, first of all, we're different biologically, right? We are completely different biologically. We're different even emotionally and and mentally. You ever hear the same men are from Mars, women are from Venus? Right? There are certain, you know, us men. long enough knows the meaning of that right but at the end of the day God has assigned us for different roles and those roles precede the fall those roles precede the fall and that there is dignity in both and honor in both roles that God has given so what are those roles let's go to Genesis chapter 2 I'm going to look started in verse 15. The Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree, tree, every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat from the day you eat of it. You shall surely die. So God, God had created Adam, and he gave Adam a task. And his task was to work and keep the garden. So there, by the way, work is not the result of sin. Hard work, work being thwarted by thorns and thistles, that's the curse of sin. But work is is a divine mandate. God created us to work. Laziness is, is satanic. Apathy is satanic. God created us and designed us to work, to be active and to work hard. That's why the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3, whoever does not work shall not eat. There were those in the Christian community who were lifted a finger and said, Christ is coming, we're not going to do anything. Paul writes instructions, let, let such busybodies, they, they shall not eat. Rebuke and warn such people. Work is a gift from God. and Anybody who knows, you know, when you've given, given a gift or a talent and you can use that to work, it's a good thing. It's a blessing. I feel good when I do a hard day's work. God's created us to work. Verse 18, and the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. I want you to think there for a minute. So so God saw that Adam was alone and he said, This was not good. So this begins the first premise of male and female, God creating us in two different genders. It is not good for man to be alone. God created man to be man and woman, to be a union. And I think this is very important because unless God calls you to be a eunuch, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, you're called to be married. Marriage is a gift from God. It's a blessing. And the big picture here, as we're going to see in a few moments, is a reflection of the image of God. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Notice make him a helper, suitable for him. Our wives are our helpers. Adam has the mandate. He's the head of the garden. He's the He's been given rule and dominion by God. He's the vice-regent of the world. He creates Eve to be his assistant, to be his helper. Now this in no way diminishes her dignity, in no way diminishes her importance, for it says in Scripture that the Lord is our helper. Does the fact that the Lord help us diminish his dignity in honor? Of course not. Now out of the ground, the Lord has formed every beast, verse 19, from the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought to them the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place, rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman brought her to the man and the man said at least last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this sends the precedent here. God created Eve out of Adam's side. He took a rib. It's not original to me, but I heard, I heard it before. God you know, didn't take a piece of Adam's head that the woman would be over him, and he didn't take his foot, that she would be under him, but he took a rib that they would be side by side. Companions, compatible, and complementary of each other. She was created to be his helpmate. Now, I think it's important here to see, though, the authority of man in the home. God had designated authority in Adam. How do we see that authority? Well, we see that God gave Adam specific authority to name all the animals on the face of the earth. That was an authority given. When you give a name, that's a symbol of authority, right? When God wrestled with, with Jacob, remember when God wrestled with Jacob and he, he overtook Jacob, he says, no longer are you Jacob, but your name is Israel. It's symbolic of God's authority over Jacob. In the ancient world, naming someone was a symbol of authority. And so God named, I mean, Adam naming Eve is symbolic of his authority. He named her. And When he finally saw the woman, he rejoices. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Finally, helper, suitable, was found for him. Now clearly, we see that God's intention and design from the very beginning was one man and one woman for marriage. Again, what we see in our culture today is the overthrow of this. And it's kind of sad and sickening because we're moving so progressively in this direction. The idea of a homosexual marriage is a contradiction in terms. It doesn't define marriage biblically. Maybe secularly it does. Maybe the state will recognize a a homosexual marriage, but God will never recognize it. God cannot recognize it because it's illegitimate. If I say that this whiteboard is blue, it doesn't matter how much I say it's blue, it's still a whiteboard. It's not a chalkboard, it's a whiteboard. It doesn't matter what I think it is. It's what God says it is. And God will never legitimize a same-sex marriage. God created marriage to be one man and one woman. And there we see that famous phrase, a man shall leave his father, mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one that means the union, the oneness between the husband and wife are are so into one another that they become one person, one unit, one flesh. No longer two individuals, two entities, but one. And that oneness is something that is a mystical union that takes place when God joins a husband and wife together. Look in Genesis uh, Matthew nineteen for a minute. verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and test him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, And have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and then therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold vast to his wife? The Lord's quoting from Genesis. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate or tear asunder what God has joined together. A marriage of one man and one woman brought together is not only recognized by the states, but it's recognized God brought those two people together. God put it together. God joined those people in oneness. And anyone who seeks to tear that relationship apart, even the husband and wife from within, is really coming against God himself. That is because the husband-wife unit is a reflection of the image of God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony. They didn't argue. They didn't. I had a, years ago. There was a, a guy in our church, and, and he he had some issues and leadership and whatnot. And he was very a very angry guy. And we said to him, "Do you have problems at home? Do you argue with your wife?" He, "I never argue with my." Nope, not once. In all the years I've I married, never once did I have an argument. His wife called uh, me the next day, said, so I just want to reiterate. Actually, Terrence was the elder at the time. She called Terrence. I just want to reiterate what my husband said. We didn't ask for this. She just called. I never argue with my husband. I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. I have yet to meet a couple who's never had an argument. Because we're still sinners. We still have a sin nature. We still have pride. There's still selfishness in us. And as long as we are still in the sinful flesh, there's going to be conflict. God didn't intend it that way. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve are the only couple that I can verify absolutely had zero arguments. And you? (laughs) Adam and Eve were the only couple who mutually never argued with each other. They had perfect harmony and love with each other. After the fall, it's a different story. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. By the way, a little joke. Billy Graham was an easy man to be married to. Traveled the world. He trapezed around the world for years. Hardly was ever home. So one day they were interviewing Ann Graham. And they said to her, they said, just out of curiosity, has it been difficult being married to Billy? She says, oh, absolutely. Says you, you, you know, he's not home much. She goes, oh, it's been very difficult. I've had to do a lot on my own. He goes, have you ever thought of divorcing him? She goes, no, I, I never thought of divorcing him. Goes, I thought of killing him, but I never thought of divorcing him. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, that's where all the enmity comes in right? What's the first thing when, when God confronts Adam, right? Adam's the head of the home. He's the leader of the home. What's the first thing he says when God confronts him about the failure? Right? Now, I want you to think about this, because who was the first one to take the fruit and eat it? Eve. But who did God hold responsible? Adam. God didn't look for Eve and say, Eve, what have you done? He says, Adam, what have you done? And what is the first thing he says? The woman who you gave me did this. It's your fault. He put the blame on God. And we've been blaming God ever since, haven't we? All right? That's that's the nature of sin. We don't take responsibility for sin. But clearly this shows not only the aspect of of Adam's irresponsibility and his gross sin, but it shows that God held him responsible and accountable, which demonstrates that he was the head of the home. The head of the home is the one who God holds accountable, not the others. And that's a reminder for all of us husbands. It's a God will hold us accountable, and I'm that, the weight of that weighs on me heavy. There's a lot of failures on my part. Right? I, have to, I sometimes think I got a pastor, church, be the father and husband of a family. I had a lot of responsibility. God, why did you make this so hard for me? A lot of accountability. But God puts man in the place of responsibility, accountability. All right? You get to Romans chapter 5. What does it say? That sin came through Eve and corrupted the whole human race. Is that what it says? Sin came through Adam. Adam is the means. He is the, not only the head of the first family, but the head of the human race. In Adam, we re, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. It's only in Christ, the second Adam, the head of the new creation, the new human race, that we find our redemption, that we find find our renewal in the image of God. So you get to Genesis chapter 3, and the Lord levels the, the judgment, he levels the serpent, you'll go on your, like a snake on the ground, and he says to, uh, um, to man, and the thorns and thistles will bring forth for you, the sweat of your brow. And then he came to Eve, judgment for her. And he says this. I'm sorry, pardon me. To the woman, verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Women could attest to that. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This was the curse that was brought into the... So he didn't get away with it. There was consequences for her sin, too. The consequences she brought upon all women was, one, this desire to rule over your husband. This desire, it's not just desire, oh, I desire you. That's The word teshukwa in Hebrew means desire to rule over, desire to conquer, desire to have authority over. It's the same word that's used later in Genesis 4 when God says to Cain, be careful, sin is crouching at the door like a tiger, and its desire is for you not that sin said, oh, I love you, Cain, let's have a relation. No, it's desirous to rule over Cain and conquer him. And so you see there the beginning of the clash of the genders. So the woman seeks to usurp her husband's role. And it says, but he shall rule over you. The man being the more physically domineering being, abuses his authority, mistreats his wife. And that's where sin goes. Man and woman, as a result of sin, find themselves destroyed in their marriage relationship. Remember we talked about the image of God when Brother Eric was talking about the image of God. We still retain it, but it's, it's been marred. It's been corrupted. It's been perverted. It's been muddied. You could see the image of God still in fallen man, but it's been twisted. It's, 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 it's like a vi- You know when a virus goes into a computer and just messes everything up? Original sin is like a virus. It just corrupts our whole being. And so marriage, although it still reflects God's image, and God holds all marriage honorable among all men, Hebrews thirteen seventeen 17 tells us. He holds, holds marriage honorable among all men. That means even among the unsaved, God holds marriage honorable. Do you ever think of that? Because even in a blurred way, it reflects the image of God. So what does Satan want to do? Want to tar and mar the image of God? Ruin families. And he's been quite good at it. The family unit has been under attack from the very beginning. But in our modern era, we've seen it more than ever. We've seen marriages destroyed, redefined. Kids messed up. Husbands messed up. Wives messed up. Nobody knows their role and place in society anymore. And are we any better for it? All the advancement of society, all the intellectualism, all the advances that we've made as a human race, and yet we seem to go downward. What God values and what the world values are two different things. All right, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. But because because of our new creation, Christ, we have been renewed in the image of God. Right? We have been renewed in the image of God. We are new creations in Christ. And part of our renewal is that marriage is renewed. If you have two human beings who are both Christian and they both have the Holy Spirit and they're both born again, then the marriage relationship now has the added benefit of Christ in me, Christ in my wife. Christ in us, fortifying that marriage, sanctifying that marriage, renewing that marriage, and reflecting more of the image of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, we're given the portrait of what a sanctified and renewed marriage looks like. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. or any such thing that she might be holding without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. What we see here is the renewed marriage is a reflection of the image of God, but more so, it's a portrait of Christ in the church. And That's the beautiful thing is that, is that marriage, when God first created male and female in the garden and joined Adam and Eve together, God administered the first, officiated the first marriage there, that marriage was intended to be a picture, to be a prophetic type of Christ and the church. It wasn't an end in and of itself. Yes, it reflects the image of God, but it also points us to Christ and the church. We have this union. We are one with Christ. All our focus in Colossians has been being in Christ, one with Christ, union with Christ, We are no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to us. There's a oneness, a holistic oneness we have as we share in the Spirit. And in that same way, the marriage relationship of two redeemed individuals is a reflection of Christ and the church. Christ is the model for the husband, as Christ sacrificially loves us and gave his life for us, so the husbands, love your wives. Love them sacrificially. What husband here can honestly say they're loving their wives as Christ loves the church? That's a high standard. Humanly speaking, impossible. Through the aid of the Spirit, all things are possible with God. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The call is for wives to respect and to honor their husbands' authority and role in the home. That's not always easy for women. Humanly speaking, impossible. Through the aid of the Holy Spirit, all things are possible with God. When male and female fulfill their roles, not only do they enjoy a better marriage, have a happy family life, But God is honored and glorified. When husbands and wives fail in their roles, we tell a lie about God. The image of God is tarnished. And I got to tell you, the way things are going today, there's very few people who have marriages that you can look to and say, wow, the world we live in is hard. It's hard to be married today. me and Claudia were doing counseling for marriage, we listened to videotapes. Back then, VHS tapes gives away our age of R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul has a series on marriage. He made a good point. Getting married, having a marriage is difficult for two unbelievers. It's very difficult, but it's harder for Christians. You would think it's easier. It's actually more difficult. Why? Because of the assault of all the forces of the world and Satan and the flesh. We're trying to do what's right, but everything's coming against us. You have two people are unbelievers and they're living in sin and rebellion. You know, so there was a couple that I know that called me last year and not part of our church, and you know the wife said, My husband is cheating on me and Terrible situation I had to get involved in. But I think what really made me sick was that the woman, the adulteress who, was, who interrupted this relationship, she was married as well. And, and she was an unbeliever. And her husband was the one who called the wife and told her what was happening. Oh, by the way, your husband's sleeping with my wife. So obviously the woman who's a Christian is horrified the guy who's an unbeliever, you know what he says? He laughs. (laughs) He goes, that's all right. He says, I've cheated on my wife a few times. It's her turn to get even with me. It's all good. But that's the way of the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what I mean when I say it's easier for unbelievers because there are no rules. There are no morals. Let's just do whatever you want. It's filthy. It's dirty. But from people who are trying to do the right thing, or people who are trying to obey God and do right, it could be that much more difficult. But with the aid of the Spirit and the grace of God, marriage is sanctified, and over time glorifies God and beautifies God. Look at First Corinthians chapter 11. How do we know that, well, you know, Bob, this of the wife, this is this is archaic, and how does that reflect the image of God? Well, it does. Go to First Corinthians chapter eleven. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition, even as I delivered them to you. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head was shaven. Now, I'm not going to get into head coverings. But notice, notice the progression here. The head of a man is Christ, the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so we see there that even within the Godhead, there's divine subordination. The Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry says, I do nothing unless the Father tells me. I only do what the Father gives me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. The Lord in his prayer in Gethsemane says, Lord, if this cup could be removed from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Christ is completely subject and submitted to the Father's will. Even if it pains him, knowing he's going to go to a brutal cross and suffer not only this tormenting physical execution, but he's going to bear the wrath of God. He's going to be separated from the love of the Father, which he never experienced in his whole existence and bear the, the the sin of mankind it was it, it was something that was so incomprehensible that he he sweated droplets of blood and he said nevertheless not my will but your will be done does that make jesus any lesser of god than who he is he's the supreme son he rules at the right hand of the father the father is the one in on the throne is the Son who rules at the right hand. Does, does Christ feel in any way slighted that he, is, he he's subordinate to the Father? Of course not. He loves the Father. He yields to the Father with joy. Does it diminish his glory? Does it diminish his equality? Absolutely not. The affirmation of our faith is that Christ is co-substantial with the Father. Of the same substance we confess in the Nicene Creed. He is equal with the Father spirit. There's no division among the God. There's no inequality in the Godhead. Different roles. And so that's the difference when we talk about complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is just this simple, we're equal and there's no lines. It's all blurred. And that's why we're all where we are today in our society. Men are men, men are women and women are men. Everything's confused. Once you go down that road, there's no end to it transgenderism is just one aspect of it, it could get worse, I don't know, what's next, bestiality? Oh, that'll never happen, Bob. They said, the things that happened today, they said would never happen 20, 30 years ago. It could be next. And you see, I, I, but hold on, Emery. One of the important things we have to think about, too, we have to be careful how we talk about all this. Why do I say that? You saw the shooting that took place in Colorado Springs, right? What, who's, the first, who's the first people they blamed for it all? Anyone who disagrees with homosexuality or transgenderism. They're always talking bad about it. You motivated the shooter. It's your fault. You see how things could turn on us very quickly? A drop of a dime. The world could say, you know what, it's the church's fault. A few more shootings like that, and, and, and they'll have Christians. It, 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 they'll, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll spell doom for us. So how we talk about these matters is important, right? We don't want to be like the Hillsborough Baptists, or the, the ones that go out and go to gang, pride parades and tell everybody they're going to burn in hell. Well, well, it's true. It's not the time or place to do it, right? Well, the way we speak about these matters, I'm speaking of a very matter-of-fact. We're not promoting hatred. We're just telling them what it is. This is rebellion against God. But men love their sin more than they love God. We, we're not responsible for the shooters out there. The shooter's responsibility is out of his mind, we would never promote such wickedness. But that's what the left wants you to think. They want people to think we're the enemy. How dare you? You don't love. You don't love. You don't love. I spoke to my friend Jim in Colorado Springs. He said, all the churches now in Colorado Springs are going around saying, oh, we're, everybody, God accepts us as we are. That's the new mantra. So be gay, be transgender. I'm telling you, there's coming a day when all the churches will be pressured into this. Amory, go ahead. Well, I know that someone in the Biden administration was arrested in the airport this week. The, the, the transgender dude, he's bald, like he has no hair, but he wears lipstick and and he, he got arrested for stealing a woman's clothes out of luggage in an airport. So remember this is a mental disease. When you want to dress up when a man wants to dress up like a woman, twenty not ten years ago, in John Hopkins University, the head of psychology said this is a mental illness, people need to be treated. This is abnormal. Now we're saying, oh, no, it's normal. It's good. Don't say anything bad. How does a psychiatrist try to practice sincerely when he's told the law says you can't try to tell people different? It's insanity. Go ahead, brother. People with a attra- There's always a euphemism, right? You we know. I mean, things are changing rapidly. I wouldn't be a bit surprised in another 10, 20 years from now. We're going to see pedophilia, bestiality, all those things. And you'll look back on it and say, I remember Pastor Bob said that 20 years ago, and he was right. It might even happen sooner. Good. Oh, I didn't. Nuclear waste. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of money behind it, right? What you guys failed to recognize is the LGBT movement has millions and millions of dollars in their lobbying. Hollywood, Hollywood is run. I mean, listen. I I had a girlfriend years ago before i was married and i was a girl i dated her a few times she was a producer for abc studios and i went to a party where they had the in new york city for all the cast the producers and directors of all my children it was a soap opera and i walked in i was there for maybe 10 minutes and i walked out and i never i never went on another date with this girl again and i gotta tell you everybody was gay everybody it was insane. And, and that's Hollywood. That's theater. My, 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 my cousin is an act, was an actress in, in Broadway. Everybody's gay. There's millions of dollars behind all this. And once that money goes behind a political party, well, the money talks. People are going to push through laws that support their donors. That's the way our system works. So that's the future of our country. All right. Let me move on here. I, wanna, I don't want to lose focus. I want to look at one last passage, and we're going to end... That's in, um, in First Peter. And then we're going to call it quits for the day. But all of this begins when you lose. It starts with this. Who we are. Remember I said today, any philosophy or worldview that doesn't have Christ, that doesn't have God, that's built on atheism, doesn't believe in that. And anything goes. 1 Peter chapter 4, 3 rather. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, and do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of Instructions to husbands and wives—they are very important to wives. It's, God doesn't care about how pretty you are on the outside. Don't worry about the dress you wear and the getting your hair done and makeup and those things. While well, you shouldn't let yourself go to shambles—that's not what the scriptures saying. But it's saying what's more valuable is the adorning of the heart, your spirit. It's saying that some of you may even have husbands who are not Christians. And you may win them to Christ simply by your conduct, by your spirit. It's an amazing testimony. In the same way, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way and honor your wife as a weaker vessel. You know, Scripture calls husbands to honor their wives as well. Afraid that the reason why many wives are disrespectful to their husbands is because their husbands fail to show honor to them, and so therefore you seeing that husbands are ultimately responsible. The honor there goes back to the creation ordinance. God created us as male and female. God created us in His image. We're to respect that image, to love that image, and to propagate that image. When we fulfill our roles correctly, then we will have harmony at home and in the church. Uh, one more thing, one more thing, and that is the issue of male and female in the church. This understanding of headship is the reason why we have men as pastors. And in the church, we're seeing there's a greater push for this to have women in the pulpits. We must not capitulate to the pressure of culture again. There's a constant pressure to push and push and push. I could tell you all the mainstream Protestant and Pentecostal churches in this area that are way out in left field, they all have women pastors. kind of goes hand in hand. We have to maintain what God has called us to do. Men have the responsibility. And I want you to think about this. When God came to this earth and took the form of a human being and became incarnate, God appeared not as a woman but as a man. The Lord Jesus Christ is a, was a man. He chose his 12 disciples, which were men. The Levitical priesthood was led by men. Now, sure, the Lord gave access to women to the ministry like no other Jew did before. Mary Magdalene, we see in the New Testament, Priscilla. We see a lot of women active in ministry. That's exactly what Christ did. He broke down those barriers. But there's a barrier around the vocation of the pulpit. There's a barrier around the pastorate that I think is quite clear. God has designed for men to fulfill. Last but not least, look in your Bibles in 1 Timothy Chapter Two. Originally, I was going to have Eric teach this, but then I thought, no, the pastor has to teach this because I don't want you getting mad with him and getting mad with Anthony. You can get mad with me. Go ahead, Jiven. I would agree with that. I mean, we see that. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, no, 15, right? Talks about the end of the age when the Son will hand the kingdom to the Father. I don't want to digress, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute. If the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, well the father will never be subordinate to the son the father and son will never be subordinate to the spirit the spirit is subordinate to the father and the son and the son is subordinate to the father that that is the economic trinity that will never change that's the that's the design of the godhead and that will never change in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Pardon me. Give me one moment. Here it is in verse, um, verse twenty, verse twenty-three. But each in his order, speaking of the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits; then in his coming, those who belong to Christ, this is speaking of the order of the resurrection. Then comes the end, when he delivers, that is, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things under subjection under him. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be also subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I think that answers your question, Jiven. Once we reach the glorified state. The Son is completely subjected to the will of the Father and hands over the kingdom to the Father for eternity. Finally, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place that Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The very pain that God said would come upon a woman in childbirth is the very very pain that brings about salvation. It brings forth godly seed into the world. Propagates a godly lineage. But this is the scripture that we look to that tells us that men are the ones in authority in the local church. Now, clearly, there are less and less of men who are qualified for that position. And we're seeing, I think, really a downgrade in our society. We're seeing a downgrade of men who, could, who can stand with authority in the pulpit. And Unfortunately, when we see that, we see women filling those vacancies more and more. And so all of this comes back down to what we said, understanding our gender roles, our gender identity and fulfilling what God has called us to. The world is absolutely and utterly against us on all these issues. And if you follow the world and the way the world is moving, none of this will make sense to you. In fact, if you're in the world, this is offensive. I got to tell you, a a, a non-Christian, atheist, secular person sitting listening to this lesson would be so offended, they'd run out that door. They would have ran out 20 minutes ago. But it's truth. Go ahead, sister. Correct. but well they're all lesbians too all these mainstream protestant ministers these female ministers they're all lesbian that's the fullest expression of feminism by the way Rosaria Butterfield when we watched her testimony a few years ago, said, I wasn't a lesbian because I was sexually attracted to women. I was a lesbian because it was the fullest expression of independence from men. I don't need men. Women with women. Absolutely. Misunderstand uh the such misunderstanding um the scriptures and that means that other women see the lines of God and then start to show themselves of truly and able to fulfill that calling of God in their way. It caught up this misunderstanding. So if you have that going on and that's because the men are not leaning. Don't understand the scripture, but absolutely, women have a role in the church to teach other women, to teach the children. You know, in private, a woman and her husband could share the word of God together. All right, the many things that I could learn from my wife, and I think any husband with an ounce of humility will admit the same. We could learn from our wives, but I think what we're talking about here is the role in the church, and the role of elder. The role of elder is that reserved for male headship. Julian. Yeah. Right. Oh, I like that. That's the whole point. God designed the marriage of husband and wife to be a beautiful portrait of who God is. And when we're fulfilling our roles, it does beautify the not only does it is it a beautiful picture in and of itself, but it glorifies God. I like that illustration, thank you. Mari? Husband of one wife, yeah, right. Masculine form, yeah. Well, Peter says that in Second Peter three that the unstable and the uneducated twist the word of God. So, go ahead, Marva. Yeah, we have women pray in prayer meetings. A woman to speak at all? Yeah, I. There's only one church I've been to like that. About Presbyterian? They were Reformed Baptists. Yeah, I. I mean, it, 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 it's probably on the more conservative end. I've I've never experienced that personally. I've seen it in a Reformed Presbyterian church. Ironically, a Reformed Presbyterian church I went to won't permit a woman to pray, but will permit a woman to lead worship. So, you know, some of these things could be so uh, contradictory at times, but, I mean, you look through the scripture and we see women praying. So I, I, I believe that in the context of a prayer meeting, Absolutely, we can. I, I don't. I don't. That's not having authority over a man coming in this pulpit, doing what I'm doing now in a mixed audience is authoritative. This is why I wouldn't permit anyone to teach this course but myself because I think as the pastor I have to assume responsibility for a subject of this matter. Yes. What it's saying is if you're married, if you're married, the little translation is be a one-woman man. In other words, you, someone, if you're looking at someone to be, there's a lot of men. John Stott, who God rest his soul, was a great pastor in England. He was a single man. He never married his whole life. What does Paul say in First Corinthians 7? He says, if you could get away without marrying, you could be like me, you'll be better off. Right? Because the person who's not married is singly focused on the Lord. The person who's married has to please his wife and please the Lord as mixed responsibilities. So, yeah, if you could be alone and be a pastor, fantastic. But if you can't, you know, if you're married, then, then yes, the qualification is you should be a one-woman man. It should be someone with a reputation who's faithful, not a philander or an adulterer. That's essentially what it's saying. Yeah. If, if you're someone, it's like saying your kids should be in subordination. That doesn't mean that you have to have kids. But if you do have kids, they should at least be respectable and in control of themselves and not wild. And it doesn't say they have to be believers, but at least not bringing scandal and reproach to the gospel. Any other questions or comments, Marva? Just, just to add to that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's you're you're avoiding you know the appearance of evil and the possibility of falling into sin, but a married guy could fall into sin. there's there's, there's measures you take to protect yourself as a minister? right that that you you know you you're on guard but that could happen to a married man or or an unmarried man yeah I mean Yeah. It would be a hindrance, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think you made a good point. You, You talked about 1 Corinthians 7 as well, as the husband and wife not neglecting their conjugal duties. Why? Well, what happens if you neglect the conjugal duties? Well, you can't always expect your spouse to be pure. Right? So usually that's uh, the first cause of, a, of adultery and failure. So yeah, there's a great responsibility, a great call in marriage. And it's not easy. Anybody who says it's easy... <laughs> but, but it's... You know, this is part of being a Christian. This is why the church is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. The true church, when I'm saying the true church, people are committed to doctrinal and, and orthodoxy. Because this is, this, you know, the, 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 the biblical Christianity is a high calling. And, and you know, unless you, you're, you're born again, this is, this is not for the faint of heart. It's not your best life now. You know, and I'm going to end with this thought. John Stott wrote this, and and, and, um, I know Stott was an annihilationist, and and I overlooked that because most of his writings are amazing. If you've never read anything by John Stott, please do. In fact, that might be one of my next Bible studies, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It's a phenomenal writer. Um, He had a great impact on me. But but he said something once. He says, when you look at the, the wife and the husband in Ephesians 5 the wife is called to submit to her husband what does that require dying to self right to submit to your husband to yield to your husband's story requires you to die to yourself right husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church what does that require dying to self you see when you look at what, what is Christ saying pick up your cross and follow me the christian life is about dying to self paul fry was here. you'd hear a loud amen right now Right? Paul I preaches that, you know, never forget what Paul preaches, because he lived it. He lived it. He was the greatest example of dying to self. Look at the way he took care of Daisy. How many of us husbands could be like Paul was with Daisy? That's what marriage is when, when you have two people who are dying to self, they'll fulfill their roles. but as long as self and pride exist. That's where conflict always arises. All right. Now we'll have uh, Tony read Psalm 109 again. I'm only kidding. <laughs> but the good news is this. The good news is that we can leave here today with the hope of Christ renewing, enabling, equipping us and that in him, as everything we've said today in today's sermon, We have all the answers. We have the fullness of knowledge and wisdom, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Lord, um, as this lesson is spoken, it's a, I I suppose, a correction to all husbands and wives in the room. And So I pray, Father, that uh, we would receive your correction and that we would strive to be better husbands and wives because we want to glorify you. We want you to look good, Lord, and, we, and we're sorry, Father, when we don't make you look good. Please help us to be better husbands and wives. And I pray for the unmarried today, Lord. Help us to glorify you even in singleness, for whether in singleness or marriage, we can honor and glorify thee. I pray, Father God, for those who will get married one day. pray that this lesson would help them to think and consider what marriage is about. It's not just about them. It's about you. Marriage is to glorify you. We pray that they would see this in Christ's name. Amen.